The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, big tech is a monopoly, says Congress. In the wake of the antitrust report from a House subcommittee, former Microsoft CEO Steve Ballmer talks big tech breakup. Do I think all this threat of breakup, blah, 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 is it really ever going to happen? Yeah. I, I'll bet money on that. Also, the founder of USA Facts, Ballmer takes on misinformation. The facts really matter and people can have their own opinions. They just shouldn't have their own facts about what's already happened. Chevron CEO Michael Wirth on gender equity in industry, U.S. energy, and weathering the COVID storm. I don't think we'll see a full recovery until uh, people have confidence that the pandemic's under control. Plus, remembering a legend. Those of us of a certain age remember Eddie Van right. Halen from Jump. For a lot of us, it was just such a big piece of our growing up. It's Wednesday, October 7th, 2020. Squawk Pod begins right now. Good morning. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. It's great to have you back, Becky. First up today on the podcast, Big Tech big monopoly. After a 16-month investigation and somewhat dramatic hearings with technology company CEOs back in July. We're talking about people's liberties here. We have to I think what you might be referring to happened on Twitter. The House Antitrust Subcommittee has finally released its massive report on the market power of Amazon, Facebook, Apple, and Alphabet. Written by the Democratic staff of the committee, the findings in the nearly 450-page report suggest that America's huge tech companies make changes to become smaller. Primarily, the committee recommends tech companies spin off parts of their businesses or regulations are put in place that make it harder for them to buy smaller companies. For example, this could include a scenario like forcing Google to divest from YouTube or Facebook spinning off Instagram or WhatsApp. Former Microsoft CEO Steve Ballmer is our first interview today. He led the company after the departure of founder Bill Gates, but Ballmer was a Microsoft lifer and key inside the company during United States v. Microsoft Corp. That was the late 1990s antitrust case where the U.S. government accused Microsoft of operating a monopoly in the PC market by installing its own software and programs on computers and basically making them impossible to remove. This was a different time in personal computing, a different era, and Microsoft avoided being split up into separate companies and eventually reached a settlement with the government. But the lessons are incredibly relevant today. We asked Ballmer about big tech, the power of information, and a lot more. Here's Andrew. Joining us now to talk about this, his $10 million campaign to persuade Americans to stick to the facts and so much more is former Microsoft CEO and USA Facts founder. Also, of course, L.A. Clippers chairman Steve Ballmer. And it's great to see you, Steve. We appreciate you being here uh, on such a newsy, a newsy day. It's been a newsy week. It, it feels like, obviously, 2020 has been a newsy year. But um, uh, to, to, this, uh, to this point of the news that's out over the last 24 hours uh, on antitrust law and these four companies, given uh, the crucible that Microsoft went through already. How do you think about it? And how do you think about this idea that this report suggests that fundamentally 
the Sherman law should be changed, meaning the Sherman Act uh, antitrust law needs to actually be changed unto itself. Well, I'm going to make kind of a crazy statement, but it blew my hair back, Andrew. That's how crazy the, the thing occurred to me. That doesn't mean there's not a role for government somehow in the regulation of, of industry. Certainly what, what I learned as we were going through our antitrust uh, issues in the early 2000s is that you can do things that seem 100% consistent with the law all along the way, but then if you wind up with a position that somebody deems a monopoly, life gets kind of crazy. And I, I would certainly recommend to, to all these tech companies to engage on the issues now, to engage with the regulators now. Uh, I see no change in the antitrust law that's really going to deal with the, to some degree, settle the nuance of these, of these businesses. So when you look at a Google, for example, having a YouTube on one end or selling advertising on the other against their, their, their own customers, or you look at an, the Apple situation now where they're charging uh, a certain amount of money to be on the app store, do you think that they should, on their own, reverse those measures? Or do you think there's something else that need, they need to do? Uh, I think the the thing that really needs to happen is they need to have a smart regulator to talk these things through with. I do not think that they can just sort of take a unilateral action and expect it to satisfy whatever it is some regulator or congressman will decide they should have done. So the key is to engage. Uh, you could change the law and it still might not be clear to these companies what they need to do to comply because the law is not going to be written case by case by case. I also don't think the case of Apple is the same as Google is the same case is the same as Amazon. In a sense, putting them all together makes good theater, but it doesn't necessarily mean good good policy, in my opinion. But, but you don't think that they should take preemptive action, meaning an Apple should announce a new program that they're going to allow a, a separate app store run independently by others to try to to, to try to upend the any type of uh, inquiry into their own into their own business. Well, they could, but suppose suppose the conditions on which they announce that are different than the regulators want after the fact. So you can offer something that's not a wor the worst idea in the world, Andrew, but what if you offer the wrong thing and now you have to do what you offered plus what the regulators want? Uh, you know, for me, it, it's crazy, uh, given all we've been through and all I know about this stuff. I, I, if I'm in these guys' shoes, I say, come on, let's, let's get down there and let's, let's regulate me and let's get it over with so I know what I can do. Steve, I also want to talk to you uh, about USA Facts, but in particular, I want to talk to you about misinformation and how you're thinking about how big tech is playing a role in that. You probably saw this news. I'm looking uh, at just, uh, just yesterday, Facebook and Twitter removing a post from President Trump that claimed that the coronavirus uh, was uh, less deadly than the flu. What do you think the responsibility of, of big tech should be in, the, in these types of cases, especially when the president is tweeting or posting about them? I think they have a hard job. If, if it's a celebrated, verified poster like the president, if, the, if those companies want to review that, they can. And, and you know, I'm silent on what the policy should be. Although, as you know, I'm big about quoting the data. Nobody should be able to say things like that without showing, well, okay, we say COVID is less bad than X. Where's the numbers? Look at the numbers. It's, it's what we're doing with our usafacts.org project. 
to try to make sure people can see issues grounded in the same numbers, the same data. And big tech companies, they can't run around and fix that up probably everywhere on their site, but they're going to need to use more and more uh, smart software to help snoop these things out. And maybe they can provide the kind of context we try to do in USA Facts. Hey, Steve, I just wanted to go back to your, your point about what you think these big tech companies should be doing right now in terms of engaging with the regulators. I think that's sound advice. Um, but I just wonder if it's gotten too polluted and if it's too late for these companies to try and do something like that. It, it does seem to me that Zuckerberg's been trying to do that for the last year, possibly, to sit down and kind of get an answer from them, ask to be regulated so they don't have to maneuver this themselves. You think his uh, entreaties are not being put to the right use? Do you think they're, they're, they're you know, not, uh, is he not asking the right people? Or is it just the entire environment in Washington right now is so polluted that, that nobody can even do this at this point? I doubt it's the latter. Uh, I think probably what you have is a situation that is, is hard. The regulators may not know what to do either. The regulators uh, need to take a look at these things. They need to engage. Have they really engaged at the detail level and really sat there and say, okay, well, what, what is your concern about the way we do this ad? What's your concern about the way we do take this uh, uh, measure to help uh, ensure the validity of the advertising on our system? Whatever the case may be, you actually have to sit there and then people have to, in a sense, I won't call it negotiating, but you know, regulator brings up issue, tech company has to bring up technical solution, and they have to say, do these things actually work? I mean, that's what we wound up having to do with both the European Commission and the U.S. government. Uh, you know, do I think all this threat of breakup, blah, 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 uh, is it really ever going to happen? Yeah, I'll bet money on that. I could be wrong, but I'll bet some money on that. Uh, and yet at the same time, um, you know, I think over the course of the next few years, each one of these organizations will have long, drawn out, uh, difficult uh, discussions with regulators. You, you said you'd bet money on the idea that they won't be broken up eventually? I, I'll bet money that they will not be broken up. I'd bet money on that. Uh, that doesn't mean, as in our case, somebody won't order them broken up before that gets uh, gets uh, pulled back. Uh May there be, you know, they're, they're talking about, will acquisitions be looked at differently? Yeah, I believe that might happen. Uh, but really forced to spin things out. As I read the concerns, just me as a non-antitrust lawyer reader, I read the concerns and I don't even think this notion of breaking them up answers most of the questions uh, that people are raising or m many of the complaints they're raising. Steve, I want to get to USA Facts, but I have one other related question to all of this. Again, headline in the news, you're the largest shareholder of Microsoft individually, that is still, I believe. Um, Microsoft emphatically denying a suggestion uh, just yesterday in a recent letter from the U.S. Department of Labor that its recent initiative to spend $150 million uh, on diversity and inclusion programs amounted uh, to what the government was suggesting was uh, race illegal race discrimination used to run the company. What do you think of that? It just drives me, it, it drives me crazy. Uh, I don't know specifically what Microsoft's doing, and I, don't, I haven't gone and read any specific complaint, but the notion that Microsoft is being a good corporate citizen, that it is investing and in really trying to have the most diverse and inclusive workforce it can, I salute the company for that. Uh, I salute the company for trying to 
look like uh, its customer base to bring that kind of talent in. I think that's a phenomenal thing. Uh, if you know there is has been systemic racism in our country going back to our founding and the notion that companies don't shouldn't at least push themselves to make sure that they're trying to become more diverse. Uh, Shame, shame on our, our laws and regulations if they actually say that. I would, I would be very sad. Steve, I want to talk about USA Facts. You're spending $10 million on a new advertising campaign around the nonprofit that you started, which unto itself has a, a budget, I think, of a little more than $10 million annually already. So this is doubling what you're doing. Uh, and, it, and it really comes at a time when there is so much misinformation uh, ahead of this election. What do you think that Americans don't understand about the information? And, and in truth, do you think that Americans actually want to know the data? Or are they looking, dare I say, for their own version of the truth? Oh, I think there's people who look for their own version of the truth. And that's, that, that is what it is. There's nothing to be done about that. I think there are plenty of people who actually want to know what is the current state of our country? And at USA Facts, what we do, we don't do forecasting, we don't do in our own market research, we just take government numbers, which I believe the government puts together in a valid and proper way, we put them together and we present them to people. The people who do wanna know really what's going on. Where is the tax money coming from? Where are we spending the money? And what kind of outcomes are we getting? Uh, is our health getting better? Is the quality of education better? Is the uh, our lifestyles in terms of what we can buy and how we can live? Are those things getting better or not? And I, there are people. It might be 20% or 25% of the electorate. It might be 40 or 50. But we need to also do our job to step up and say, how do we make this stuff digestible? A lot of people don't digest numbers very well. In, in, our, in our campaign that we're running now, Change the Fat, Change the Story, what we're trying to do is help people dimensionalize how real people with their really daily choices are help changing the numbers and the situation and inside uh, our country. Whether it's heart disease or STEM degrees, people should know what's going on in terms of um, increases in heart disease. It's a bad thing. Women getting STEM degrees going up, it's a good thing. All that and more at uh, usafacts.org. And we're doing it because we think the facts matter. The facts really matter and people right. can have their own opinions. They just shouldn't have their own facts about what, what's already happened. Steve, it's an important project. Before we let you go, NBA, here we are. What do you think? But also tell me, what do you think is going to happen with the 2021 season? Is that going to happen in person? Is that going to be back in a bubble in Florida? What's How's this going to work? Well, first, let me say, I don't know. I'm not even sure our commissioner knows because the commissioner, the league, the Players Association, there's so many things that have to have to work out. We don't know where we're going to be on vaccines. I don't think it keep people in bubbles for months and months on end. So all I'm going to do is I'm going to cross my fingers that we get a season that starts with just cheering, you know, feverish fans rooting for their Los Angeles Clippers, and it doesn't start too late next year. But after that, all I can do is leave it to the NBA League Office and our Players Association. Okay. Steve Bomber, it's great to see you. We appreciate you uh, being with us, and good luck with the USA Facts campaign. Thanks. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Becky. Appreciate it. 
Next on Squawk Pod, American energy and the global lack of demand. No one is going anywhere on planes, trains, or automobiles. Chevron CEO Michael Worth. We're still in a, I would call it a variable kind of state of the recovery and well below pre-COVID demand levels. We think the commodity prices are likely to be pretty choppy and volatile along the way. We'll be right back. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod. Here's Becky Quick. Energy stocks were some of those uh, stocks that dropped yesterday after President Trump announced the end of stimulus talks. The sector has faced multiple headwinds this year, including limited demand, volatile prices and unpredictable weather. Joining us right now, Chevron CEO Michael Wirth. And Michael, it's been a while. It's really good to see you this morning. Becky, good morning. It's good to see you, too. Let's talk a little bit about what the market's reacting to, the, the idea of whether or not there's going to be a second aid package or an additional aid package coming from Washington. Um, obviously, oil prices fluctuate quite a bit and they move on a lot of different things. But demand has been the big overwhelming issue that we've been facing all through this year as coronavirus shut down economies and slowed down demand in other places. I just wonder what it looks like from your perspective right now. What, what, what do you think is happening in the world and, and what does the demand picture look like? Well, demand seems to really correlate with the status of the pandemic in different regions of the world. In Asia, China, for instance, uh, we've seen really robust demand recovery, less so in Europe and North America. And it can vary uh, by type of demand. So uh, air travel continues to be uh, at very, very low levels. So the demand for jet fuel globally uh, is significantly below uh, levels that it was at before the pandemic. Uh, gasoline has come back uh, reasonably well in most places, although you still have a lot of people working from home, less commuting. Uh, an offset is less public transit uh, as well, and so a little more driving to offset that. Diesel demand uh, has stayed firmer throughout this. So we're, we're still in a, uh, I would call it a variable kind of state of the recovery and well below pre-COVID demand levels, which I don't think we'll see a full recovery until uh, people have confidence that the pandemic's under control. Well, that's what I wanted to ask you about. This week, Boeing lowered its demand outlook for its planes over the next decade by 11 percent because of the repercussions of COVID and people not feeling comfortable going back into the airs again or back into the air again to, to fly. I, I know that you guys took a big write down in your last quarter, something like $1.8 billion or something for a lowered outlook for commodity prices. Is this the type of thing that you think is going to last for years, even potentially a decade, too? Or do you see everything outside of airlines kind of bouncing back quite a bit sooner? Yeah, there are different opinions on that, Becky. Uh, our view is that we've seen uh, a substantial amount of the recovery that was, I'll call it the easier return of demand that's already occurred. And uh, and what remains really is that, that more difficult demand, the demand that's much more sensitive to concerns. Uh, about the pandemic. And our view is that uh, vaccines are likely on the way. And that as those begin to deploy, be deployed more broadly, you'll see people resume uh, movements and behavior that looked like 
uh, a lot like what it was pre-pandemic. But this is, you know, we're still talking a, a number of quarters, you know, well into next year, most likely. And uh, and we think that uh, commodity prices are likely to be pretty choppy uh, and, and volatile along the way. There's still a lot of supply that can come into the markets to uh, to meet growing demand. There's a lot of excess inventory that's built up around the world. And so before we see energy prices really firm in a way that, that's durable, uh, that excess supply needs to, to really start to match up with demand better. I know that uh, you have kind of proven that you will not get into bidding wars uh, with the Anadarko situation last year, but you did close just this week on, on Noble Energy, on that acquisition. And I know that's a pretty big deal. This is something where you're paying in stock, so you didn't take on a lot of debt for this. Um, how does this change the makeup of the company uh, from, from this point with the additional resources that you'll pick up through Noble? Well, we were somewhat uniquely prepared to enter into a transaction. We're different than some of the others in our industry from that point of view. And Noble Energy had done a really nice job uh, building a set of world-class assets uh, for a, a company their size with uh, big positions in Colorado, in uh, Texas, uh, complementary to our Permian position, and then uh, particular success in the Eastern Mediterranean with some large gas discoveries in the waters off of Israel. A nice job commercializing that with sales contracts into not just Israel, but also Jordan and Egypt. And the Eastern Mediterranean is an area that uh, holds uh, some interest from uh, uh, an exploration standpoint. So for us, uh, the assets really match uh, our capabilities well. They fit into our portfolio. They're likely to compete for capital. And of course, we'll see merger synergies uh, as a result as well. So we were positioned at a time in the cycle when uh, we could make an acquisition, we could de-risk that acquisition somewhat, uh, given where we were. And as you say, it's an all-stock deal. So uh, we think this is good for the shareholders of both companies, and we're very pleased to uh, be joining forces with Noble. You mentioned some of the merger synergies. That's code for, in, in some cases, layoffs. You did say over the summer that there will be layoffs because of particular, I think, in, in the home office, some overlap in the jobs. Can you give us any um, additional details on, on what that might mean for employees who are kind of waiting to, to see what happens next? We're in the process of making those decisions now, and, and we're working with the management of Noble to, uh, to to really firm up some of the organizational decisions that need to be made. And of course, we were in a large restructuring of our own that began before the pandemic began. And, uh, and so those two processes are really coming together. And it, it's it's painful and challenging because we do have um, you know, several thousand uh, reductions in, in our workforce as we go forward. Uh, by the end of this month, uh, those decisions not only will have been made, but individuals will know their outcome as a result. And so we're still in the process of, of working through that uh, very difficult set of uh, decisions. Hey, Mike, you, you, you've said as recently as this summer that the, the dividend is still a top priority for you. Your, your dividend's pretty high at this point, 7%, below what Exxon's is, at closer to 10% at this point. But is that 7% dividend something that you still consider a top priority? Is it safe? We've held a consistent set of financial priorities for decades, and uh, we know why most of our shareholders hold our stock, and it's because they count on the dividend. These are pension funds for uh, retired people or people who are headed towards retirement, and they really count on that, that income. So we've always prioritized that first. Uh, second priority is to reinvest in the business to support uh, the dividend. 
the third then is to maintain a very strong balance sheet. And, and you know, the fourth priority has been to repurchase stock when we've got the first three priorities satisfied. We came into this with the strongest balance sheet in our industry. We made significant uh, reductions in our capital spend. We're, we're spending capital rate today that's about 40% lower than when we entered the year. And, uh, and even with this acquisition, we continue to have a very strong balance sheet. So our dividend uh, is secure. We've stress tested uh, the, the future scenarios at prices lower than we see today and, uh, and still have uh, plenty of capacity to, uh, to pay the dividend. So uh, we feel good about that. And we feel good about the way our people have executed through a really challenging period and, and one that still has, I think, some uh, challenges ahead of us. When you run stress tests on, on potential for lower prices of commodities than where they are today, have you ever run a stress test looking at, at what happened earlier this year where you basically had to pay people to take oil off your hands? That's uh, that's uh, several standard deviations into the tail, and, and it didn't last long uh, when, when we saw that. There were a unique set of circumstances that, uh, that came together. People were concerned that there would be no place to store oil. And those who had obligations to take oil needed to unload those if they didn't have access to storage. So uh, a unique confluence of, of events there uh, that we wouldn't test for negative pricing. Uh, but uh, we do test at, at prices well lower than where we are today. Like $20 a barrel? Yeah, we, what we shared with our investors was $30 for multiple years. And um, and that's that's well below the level that the industry would re you know the reinvestment economics of thirty dollars are not very attractive and so you would expect supply to uh, to gradually uh, dry up and that thirty dollars is probably not a sustainable price for the long term but certainly if if we saw demand soft for for multiple years uh, you know that's a scenario we want to understand what our company looks like and and look it's not fun at thirty dollars but uh, but we can. You know, we survive, we pay the dividend, and, uh, and we still compete at that level. Mike, you're here today because you are speaking at KPMG's Women's Leadership Summit. Why are you speaking there? And what are you doing in terms of finding women to make it into the leadership ranks at Chevron? Well, we've been uh, committed to uh, diversity and inclusion for, for my entire career, and it's a personal passion of mine. Um, I serve on the board of Catalyst. Uh, several years ago, we were recognized with the, the Catalyst Award for the progress women had made in our company. And certainly our industry has a history of um, being more male-oriented than, than female-oriented. At the time, we received the Catalyst Award. 16% of our senior executives were women. Today, 26% of our senior executives are. So we've made significant progress over the last five years. Uh, but there's more work, clearly, to be done. Uh, the KPMG program pairs up uh, women with mentors. We provide mentors for that. Some of our uh, really talented uh, women leaders participate in the program. And uh, it's a way for us to collaborate with others outside of our industry to be sure that we're uh, developing the skills, advancing people, and creating an environment where everybody can bring their best self to work and, uh, and achieve their full potential. So it's a real honor to work with KPMG on this. The Wells Fargo CEO um, really kicked up some controversy recently when he suggested that it, it, it's really hard to find diverse hires, that um, it's hard they don't exist. Um, I was thinking about you with that because you're right. Your industry has tended to be a male-dominated industry. So what do you do to go around that, to, to find candidates who maybe aren't obvious or uh, maybe you have to dig a little deeper? How do you, how do, you do that? 
Well, one of the things is we have to work back into the education system. And so our uh, industry hires a lot of people with technical backgrounds, science, engineering, math. And, uh, and so we work with uh, universities. We work with historically black colleges and universities, for instance, as well. And, uh, and we actually go down into the K through 12 uh, levels of education to help strengthen STEM programs, to encourage kids who show good aptitude in math, particularly uh, young girls or, or uh, minorities, uh, to find ways to uh, have fun and to reinforce the fact that they are talented, that there are pathways to good jobs and good careers. Uh, we support that with scholarships. I've set up a scholarship at my alma mater that goes to either a woman or a, a disadvantaged minority uh, every year to help them uh, advance their uh, education. And so we try to build a broader pipeline of uh, people who are talented. And oftentimes they just need a hand along the way. They need some reinforcement and uh, they've got all the talent. They just need uh, uh, to stay with it and for somebody to believe in them. And, uh, and so we work on that. We work through the recruiting efforts as we bring people in. We're looking at uh, reducing some of the requirements for jobs so we don't use a four-year college degree as a threshold for entry because there are some very talented people that either can't or, uh, or don't have the uh, means to attend a four-year college, but they've got the skills and, and can compete for jobs. And so we're looking for ways to really be sure we've got a broad funnel and, uh, and, and source talent uh, from uh, a you know, wide range of uh, different backgrounds, and then create an environment where, where people can grow and succeed once that they begin their professional career. Mike, it's great talking to you today. Thank you for your time, and we, we hope to see you back here again soon. I'll be back. Thanks, Becky. Next on Squawk Pod, dinosaurs, legends, and Joe Kernan. Oh, my. I've been called a dinosaur, proudly. We'll be right back. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. You're listening to Squawk Pod with Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. The music world is sad. Uh, in my house, too, the music world is remembering guitarist Eddie, Halen, Eddie Van Halen, who died yesterday. He'd been battling throat cancer for several years. Uh, the band, by the way, was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame back in 2007. He's considered to be one of the greatest guitarists ever in history. And he never learned to read music, but I was thinking about that. I, I don't think a lead guitar player really is, is, I don't know how, I, what, what percentage of lead guitarists really read music? They're, you know, they're playing lead guitar anyway. 
He once told Rolling Stone that he learned to play guitar by watching and copying his guitar teacher's fingers. <laughs> All right. and, and reading music is different. You know, he, he knew chords. I'm sure he knew C, you know, D minor, that kind of stuff. But to actually, very few guitarists actually can sit there like, you know, with, now piano is different. You got to, you know, you really need to know how to, to read music. But I don't know, to be in a normal band, reading music as a guitar player, maybe some do. I don't know. I never did. It depends on if you're writing the music yourself or if you're following somebody else's stuff. I think he came well, up with lead. a lot of his own riffs. That was right. just him going with it. Yeah. Lead guitar. Just just you know, air guitar. Yeah. Air guitarists yeah. don't need to read any music. You know, those of us of a certain age remember Eddie Van right. Halen from Jump, the one we're playing now, from all these things, and his yeah. whirlwind romance with Valerie Bertinelli. She was out on Twitter last night talking about how much she will miss him, she and their son. They were divorced, I think, back in 2001, but they were still very close. Um, so it's, for a lot of us, it was just such a big piece of our growing up and, you know, going through middle school and high school and to have right. them there for all of those times. It's hard to look at this. He was only 65. He was only 65. Yeah. An update on a story we uh, first told you about just a couple of weeks ago. Christie's is sold. Do you remember this? The Tyrannosaurus Rex skeleton that had been nicknamed Stan. The price tag, $31.8 million. That includes fees. It quadruples its high estimate of $8 million. The auction culminated in a 20-minute bidding war with buyers on the phone in London and New York. The winning bidder has not been identified, but somebody's taking a dinosaur home today. How do you do that? Uh Joe? Yeah, how do you do that? <laughs> Very carefully. But, I mean, they, they assembled it, obviously. And I, I guess you, you'd, have to, uh, you'd have to pay to disassemble it and then pay to have it reassembled. I guess it doesn't matter if you've got $38 million to spend on a, uh, on a dinosaur. Oh, looks like there's a little compression in that one disc there. I bet you that was painful. Uh, uh, <laughs> anyway, and... Uh, I think you're projecting, Joe. Yeah, maybe I am. Maybe I am. I've been called a dinosaur, probably. And that's Squawk Pod for today. Here's what pollster Frank Luntz had to say a week ago, just one week ago, about the first presidential debate. My undecideds looked at that and said, how do you expect me to make up my mind if you're going to behave like this? In the next debate, these candidates are going to have a lot of pressure on them because the public is going to say, do not do this again. What will he say about the one meeting between Vice President Mike Pence and Democratic nominee Kamala Harris? Check out this podcast tomorrow to get all the reaction and analysis. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern and subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.